needed older women when I was growing up because I came from, I, I didn't have what I would call a, like a loving, heartful mother's experience. So when I was coming into Toronto as an actress, I would visit this woman called Mari Hops and she was an acting teacher and uh, she was also a Buddhist and there weren't many Buddhists in 1980 here, you know what I mean? Now they're everywhere, but you know, we're all like namasteing, but really there was no namasteing. <laughs> And I just thought she was the most exotic human being. And I'd go to her house and she would say these things that I'd never heard of, like, there, there, darling, you're always on the path. You step off the path, just step back on the path. And I had no idea what that meant. But I just wanted her cookies and her tea. And I just loved the way she made me feel. And she had this power of just sitting on a couch and making you feel like you were the most important person in the world. You know, that power, they didn't even have to say anything. And she tried to give me advice, and uh, I just loved that she held the space for what she knew. And I really feel, in this time, older men and women need to own their wisdom. Yeah. Now, some of you don't have any, and <laughs> it's okay. You go to Florida, and um... hey there, I'm Deborah Kimmett, and welcome to the show today. Today we're going to talk about mentoring. For me, there is something so valuable in sharing what you know, paying it forward, especially with younger people, up-and-coming folks, to let People, you know, earlier in their career know what you overcame and then how you did it. Sharing your information is such a generous act. And today's guest has done that in spades. Now, we only met uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. And from that day to this, she has become my champion, my mentor. Well, she's older than me. I'm 66. And I don't know why, but... I look like a slacker compared to her. She keeps encouraging me to up my game, be visible, ask people for what I want. In fact, she will call them and tell them to book me, and she's fearless. She'll nag them until they do. Everything she approaches has such positive energy attached to it. She is a director, a teacher, an education disruptor, and my personal Energizer Bunny. Please welcome Anne Miriam. Hi there, Anne. Welcome to our podcast. How are you doing today? Hello, Deb. I'm good today. Good, good. I'm really glad you came on. Um, well, I want to get right into it. First off, I want to tell our listeners how we connected. We have kids about the same age group, and uh, they thought that you and I would hit it off, and we had a coffee together, and since then we've become, you know, wondering what is happening to the world, people, but um, it's been wonderful. Um, for those that don't know, Anne has a long-storied history, which I covered in my intro, but she also, you know, really is what I would call a champion of people and success. Just in my own personal experience, um, she went out and got me booked for things, but 
uh, we did a Mother's Day show in May, and uh, I normally do my comedy by myself, and I do all the stuff, and then on the day I'm pressured and I have to perform. But what was so cool about you, Anne, was that you treated me with such loveliness and kid gloves that day. And you need to go home and lie down. You're tired. And I, I got home and I went, where has Anne been my whole life? First off, because this podcast may be going around the world, we hope, uh, let's just talk about where you were born and where you grew up. I was born in Northern Ontario in a city called Sudbury. Sudbury. Oh, yeah. The old Sudbury. And and were you born into a big family, a small family? A small family, one sister. My mother was a, a, a director of theater. She loved it. And my father was an executive with International Nickel Company and the stage manager for all my mother's productions. And my <laughs> sister and I were in them all. So uh, well, that's sort of followed into the next generation. And we're going to talk about that. Yeah, yep, true, yeah. true. So you're in Sudbury. Obviously, the theater world is extremely, um, you know, it's you have access, which a lot of people from my generation, anyway, that was really novel to be in the creative arts. So um, when you were a kid, what was the quality that you seemed to possess that that was sort of unique in your family? Was there something like, oh, there's Anne again? Like, is there a quality that you know, you had as a young kid that you still have now? I was a dissenter right out of the gate. No, a disruptor, I was there as you called it. <laughs> a disruptor. I didn't follow the script. I saw what the script was. Nice little girl. My sister was doing that job. She had that role. She was perfect, beautiful. Everything was happening. I looked like a boy. My mother used to get my hair cut at the barber across the street for 99 cents. And I was just whatever I was told was a good idea, I felt I had a better idea. Well, this is a quality that often for young girls gets kicked out of them, like you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. But I teach my writing classes, and one of the exercises I give, which always provokes women to think about this, is how has disobedience been your biggest asset? Is, is that true for you? Like disobedience, that, that, you me this way and I'm going to do the other way. My one of my greatest successes was establishing a performing arts program, mm. extraordinarily diverse. When I was told for five years, you can never do this. You can't do this. You nobody can do this. This isn't fair. You can't do this. The more they shut the door, the more I pushed. And then one day, someone said, "Yeah, okay, let's go for it." Well, I want to get into that, um, but let's take you out of Sudbury now. So you go and you go to, is it Teachers College first in Kitchener-Waterloo, was it? No, I went to Western University for music. Then I did my education degree there. And then I was terrified to, to work. So then I decided to go to U of T for a master's. Then I decided not to go to U of T for a master's. Then I decided to teach. Then I decided that I wanted to study in New York and there was a program they had affiliated with London, England for a master's in theater education. So I went to London, England and studied there. Then I came back, worked a year, saved money and went to New York and lived in New York for two years. 
Okay, good. So you had a you had a very well-rounded education and I think rather than a standardized you know, got my degree and then I did this. You also incorporated a lot of different viewpoints. Yes. One of the things I want to ask is what is the quality you felt you inherited from your parents? Was there an asset there that you inherited? I, I mean, my mother's, to me, my mother born in a different era would not have had stayed, been a stay at home mom. She would have pursued her artistry. She was invited to move to Toronto to work with people in Toronto at one point. And we were teenagers, my sister and I, and she was invited to Toronto to, for this great opportunity. And she chose to stay at home and we were teenagers. So you can imagine that choice really was a great choice for her because we were not, I was particularly very, very stressful for her. So the the quality was her great artistry and in a, in her later years i share i shared with her my career and she was very much my consultant which was beautiful but that's the greatest gift from her and my father's work ethic my god i know and you still have that quality yourself so you get your education um let's take it up to when did you have your family before you started teaching or after you started teaching i had my i started teaching and then I did the whole New York scene and then completed that and then had a family. So that was in my early 30s. Good. So we're getting caught up now. I want to take us to the school you were teaching at. It was in, I believe, Scarborough, right? Yes, it was Wexford. At the time, it was just Wexford Collegiate. And today, because of the program I started, it is Wexford Collegiate School for the Arts. But in the so day, you're a teacher, what are you teaching when you got this bright idea? When I first, well, I was teaching music and drama at the time, and there was no performing arts schools for Scarborough, and we were informed there never would be. There was Why? no way they were going to, because it's not fair. So there was no way, which we've now returned to, by the way. But in the day, they had one in North York, they had one in Toronto, and they had one in the West End, Etobicoke School for the Arts, but they refused. And I felt this is where the need was greatest because there were so many young people who didn't have the means financially to train. And there was no specific training for these incredibly young, talented people. And that's why I was pushing so hard because the other kids in the other areas, they had their private piano teacher, their private voice teacher, their private dance teacher. This this area was not a wealthy area that I was working in in the whole surrounding. So I felt there was a real need. So you pushed for that and one day they said yes. They didn't know what they were saying yes to, trust me. That I just wanted to audition. I want I said I want an audition program, which made me not popular with the other drama teachers because it wasn't fair. So anyway, it's <laughs> not fair air quotes about. Well, it, it's just they didn't want a specialty school. And I felt given that there was a, a, a lot of young talent in that area that was needing the only training they would get at all, like a focused athletic school for, for kids. And, and so I pushed and I pushed and I pushed. And my principal was very, very wise. His name was Bill White. And he said, Stay under the radar. Let's do this. So you started doing it. You started developing people. And obviously the the program grew. 
And one of the, I watched some of the video. I, I did go behind your back and get your daughter <gasps> to send me some video on your style of teaching. I also got Charlie on board because I figured um, it's hard to show all your goodies when you're being asked. So I thought I'd ask them. And one of the things that I thought, first off, you have this incredibly powerful energy that comes at people that makes people feel like I am committed to your growth. I'm committed to your development. And it was this in-your-face style that also um, you pushed kids. And I was talking to Charlie, who's um, been Anne's assistant and now kind of runs that program, I believe, yes. or as the support for that program. And he said something that I wanted you to respond to, which is kind of cool. He said, we don't know why, but we called Anne the teen whisperer because she would whisper into a kid's ear and we didn't know what she said, but this kid's performance would change. And I just wonder what it, I mean, obviously being a teacher, you have a, an ability to motivate, but what was it about that particular age group that you love so much? Um, well, I happen to love that age group because they're neither here nor there. They're not in that baby world of mommy and daddy anymore. And they're not in an adult world where they're independent. So they're, 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 they're like this and they're between worlds. And I felt I could assist them in grounding in this place and getting strong to be ready for that next step with integrity and commitment and hard work. Right. So they got this, this, development um when we do the podcast and and i just want to let our, our listeners know we'll put some links to this video because it's on youtube and it's very motivational of how Anne approached her students and and her belief systems which uh, are much more in depth than what we're dealing with right now tell us about um obviously you have some incredible f famous people now and i want to talk about that at the end but is the glee the the Glee project that was on YouTube. What was that called? Not Glee, but um... uh, it, it, we were the Wexford Gleeks, and the movie that Mose Mazarian made about us was called Unsung Behind the Glee, which was a behind-the-scenes look at the Wexford Gleeks in so, competition with the Atobic School of the you Arts. You go from let's audition a few kids, yeah. make the program. <laughs> Now, all of a sudden, you're competing at this level for choir. First off, being part of the Gleeks, what did that do for kids' confidence? It, they soared. And why they soared is because the level, my attitude was, the, the second you walk into the room, you are a professional. Just like when you go to the audition, you start auditioning the second you walk in the building. My attitude is you walk in this building, you are a professional. I am treating you as such. So... Wexford Gleeks became known throughout Toronto and far beyond as this incredible group of young people. And because they were so sharp and so smart and so disciplined, and I had such a great team working with me, I could summon up any kind of song, magic, dance, anything I wanted. And people started to notice. So then the TIFF people started to hire us. So then we started to make money. And which was great. Tell people what TIFF is for those that don't know. Oh, the Toronto International Film Festival. So we got to work with James Earl Jones. We got to work with Goldie Hawn. She actually came into our entire act and danced within us 
which was so cool. She was so lovely. And we got this opportunity to meet for my kids to see outside their world. So we would do a performance for the art gallery and they would bring us to dinner and then we would perform after. So there was event after event after event and we were making money which was great and bringing it into the school which was great because we were not the special child at that time eventually it equalized out but we were not in the situation financially so now this was fantastic for our program good and i saw this clip of the of on the youtube thing and you were given one girl a pro like giving her some real direction as you got to show up you don't swear you, you know, you, you are representing this school. And I, and I mean, this is, we've, you and I have discussed this privately is like this passion for saying you're beyond who you think you are at this age. Like this quality I'm trying to imbue in you is going to be worth it when you get into the professional world. Even if some of them did not end up being in music, yeah. They learned, I, I, I thought it was really interesting. Um, Barb sent me the list of people. One was like Mike Mandel, right? Oh. The, the hypnotist, is he? Yes. yes. And you just go like these qualities you imbued with them. When the kids bucked you and said, I'm not doing that. You didn't reject them in this. I mean, the video, I'm, I'm sure you put the best qualities there, but you go, it was a really neat quality to show kids. I know you're fighting me. I know you don't want to do this, but if you want to be in this, we're going to get you to the next level. It was really cool to watch. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It was very cool to do in the sense that you felt that, that you were doing something that was worthwhile. That's what you felt and that's what the team felt. And when kids did not do well and they weren't singing at their capacity, how did you help them deal with the rejection process? Each individual kid had a reason for not making it. I took the time after they didn't make it to talk to them about why they were not able to make that cut and how they could make the next cut. But I personalized every single cut. And also, I believed in every one of those kids that it was possible for them to do a revisit and, and come through again. And by the end, of, I was known as is called cuttage, getting cut. But in the end, and I know this is so bizarre, and I've never heard this before, kids would thank me. Thanks for cutting me. I wasn't ready. Thanks for, like, even in, in the moment, even the following day, that doesn't mean they were all like that. But when no. I would, yeah. when I, I think kids know when they're not up to par. I think so, too. Like, when I remember, I, I went to this parenting course, and they said, um, you know, never say your kid's art is bad. Just tell them things like, oh, you use the color purple really well in your drawing. And my daughter, about seven years age, went, well, you stop with that. I know I, how to use a purple crayon. Like, she was like, don't give me this horse shit. <laughs> like, you know? And I think kids, I mean, not that they want to be treated cruelly, but they want to know, this is where I, I'm good. This is where I'm, I'm, I'm being challenged. So let's flip for a minute. I'm going to go on to talk about mission in a minute. But I wanted to ask you, during that time of the Gleeks, yes. you got some really public affirmation and uh, the choir was on a little celebration with Chris Hatfield, wasn't it? With <gasps> uh, OMG. Okay. Talk about great life experience. Chris Hatfield was in space. 
Commander Hatfield. And he decided he wanted to write a song with the Bare Naked Ladies. And they decided that they would do it through CBC and it would be the first taping in space. And CBC was going to do it and they needed a choir and we got the call. And that was one of the most phenomenal experiences. Better than that was me in my backyard and, and those days you could see on your phone, it said Nassau calling. Now, <laughs> what, what are the chat? Nassau's calling me. So I phone and I say, this, this is Anne Miriam. And I said, yes. And they said, um, this is Nassau. We're calling on behalf of Christopher Hatfield. He would like to have a, a phone consult with you. So I said, okay. So I said, hello. And he said, hello, Anne. This is Commander Hatfield. And I said, hi. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm in my backyard. I said, what are you doing? <laughs> and we just laughed. And he said he was nervous about his vocal solo. So he wanted me to coach him. So one of the most memorable events of my life was coaching Commander Chris Hatfield in my backyard. And he was in space. The best, the best, the best. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. And also what I love about him is he's always learning new yes. things. He's so teachable as a man. He could just be like, nah, you know, I'm an astronaut, but he's like, oh, I'm going to sing. I'm going to write a book. Um, one of the things I want to go back to for a minute is not only are you doing this, like your mom encouraged you later on, you let your mom be part of your process yes. and coaching. And you have this very, not only are you a great mama to all these singers, but you have a great mama relationship to your kids where you work with them. You, you support them at a level. Like I'd be like, okay, I can't come this week. You're like, I'm going down again. You've got two adult daughters. They're in a tribute band for the Spice Girls at the Wannabes, Correct. which really are fantastic, well, as well as so many other projects. And when we were doing the Mother's Day show and when we were doing the Christmas show, I was astounded by how much you all respected each other, not just as daughters and mother, but because it could be like, oh, mom, shut up. Or, okay, kids, get back there. You're very much a um, collaborator. Yeah. And then to add it, you also have your ex-husband. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm like that too. My ex-husband is so much a part of my life. People think we're back together. But Bob Johnson, very well-known musician and co-producer uh, of um, Anne and Gilbert, among hundreds of other things. So you put shows together. You do that. How, why is that family connection and family celebration so important to you? Because it's the soul of everything and the heart of everything. The arts is so important because for some reason, when we meet in the art, there's so much peace. I always said, if we just did musicals, this world would, would be a better place. The arts are such a healing place and you but share it. wouldn't be for everybody. Let's face facts. I'm sure like, uh, have you ever heard arts. of the musical Gypsy? They weren't exactly happy, but you're really good at like honoring your kids but they're not kids. They're adult women. And you're like, no, no, we need to do this. And then like four beats over and blah, blah, blah. But then they'll go, mom, no. And then they'll do their stuff. And nobody's, and then you go out for lunch. Like I'd be home sucking my thumb. Like I didn't grow up with that kind of, um, well, first off that amount of connection, but also just how well you respect each other. It's pretty cool. Oh, thank you. Again, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 
really neat. It's great. And there's always a project on the horizon. And, and they all have partners. And now you're like, get, oh, I can't hire Eric. Like I said, once you get in yes. that family, it's like the mafia. Now I'm never going to not be in the Christmas show. Because it's like, I feel like I got into this connection. And then there's this bigger family, a myriad of wonderful performers. Uh, LaVar Burton, is that one of them? A Lamar Johnson. Lamar Johnson. Sorry, I said, oh, that's the wrong. Yeah, that's a different guy altogether. Um, but I just want to set this up and then I want you to talk about Mish. Okay. Mish, there's this, okay, so we're doing this um, Christmas show and I'm in the back and I'm just a comedian. They're all doing like sound checks and five part harmony and moving around in costumes. And I'm just there with a the mic. And there's this young guy sitting next to me and he goes, I go, who are you? And he goes, oh, yeah, I'm part of the stage production. I'm thinking he's a stage manager. He's got a little sweater on. He looks about like the most unassuming guy. And then he comes on stage and sings Oh, Holy Night. I was like, I should have been bowing down to you. You are amazing. So tell me the story of Mish, because this is where your disruptive, no-holds-barred type of personality really shines on others and I think that, you know, everyone who, everyone I spoke to, which was just Charlie and Barb, but said that you are known for your generosity. So, but it's also this fierceness that I feel Mish's story really, um, in you know, emboldens. But his name is Mish, and what's his last name? Eusebio. Eusebio. So tell me the little story of that and how you... Mish came to us in grade nine. His father was had immigrated and his father was a pastor who made approximately 16,000 a year. And Mish walked in and auditioned. He opened his mouth, the angels gathered. And I thought, okay. So then I had all my little moles, my little kids say, oh, are you auditioning at another school or did it? And he's no, I don't want to come here. So then of course I approached him in grade nine and I said, now Mish, um, are you taking singing lessons? He said, well, we don't have any money. I said, that's okay. We're going to scholarship you. Remember when I spoke earlier of the money that we would get? So that then we had this great relationship with a teacher who was perfect for him. So off he went. So then when he hit grade 12, it was time for auditions. And I said, okay, you will be, <laughs> I love this. You will be auditioning for Juilliard. What's Juilliard? He says, I said, it doesn't matter. You're auditioning for Juilliard. So his teacher, myself, we worked on him, got him ready for Juilliard. He went to Juilliard. And then about a month later, he came with his letter. And he said, here's my letter, but I'm not going. And I looked at him and I said, oh, but you are going. So then it became a mission. And then the principal at the time, uh, Marg, was really helpful because there was a gentleman who gave scholarships and he gave like two, 3000 a year for kids to go to York or kids to go elsewhere. So I had to make the case as to why this, his name was Stuart Allen, who has regrettably since passed, but I went to his office. He was a millionaire down at uh, the Toronto star building on top, this beautiful boardroom. He, me, Mish and his sister. And I sat there and he said, now why, why should I give this young man the scholarship? And then I got started about, and it was all true. I said, this young man is going to make a huge difference in this world. He is an angel. He is somebody who's going to, anybody who works with him, he'll make the room better. I went on and on. And then I started sobbing. So then Stuart Did you do asked, this on purpose or were you really crying? I was really, because he had to go and I had a mission. And so <laughs> he said, 
Mish at the time worked at Michael's with that craft shop and, and Mish, who's so delightful and so, so oh, innocent. He goes, well, maybe they have a scholarship program. And then Stuart said to me, how much will you need? And I said, 40,000 American. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. We walked out, we got the call uh, in that next week. He agreed. I met him at, Mish's graduating recital in New York at Juilliard. And I went over to him and I said, so what do you think of your investment? He said, the best investment I ever made and proceeded to pay for his master's in Cleveland with this opera teacher that was world renowned. So yes, yeah, so Mish is part of the family. That's an amazing story. And also Mish, I will put a link to the opera he does. Oh, yes. oh my gosh, his voice is astounding. And just a little short guy, you, you can't imagine a voice is coming out of that body. Yeah. Well, we're going to wrap it up fairly soon here. Um, I just want to ask you one question about, you know, you're at this age and when you look back, was there one time where you felt life knocked you down? And like, we're, it's called downward facing broad. So we're trying to like, where you really lost your energy, your hope. It doesn't have to be the most serious, but just where it took a minute before you got back up and got your sense of humor back. Yeah. Yes, it did. I'll tell you when. Uh, it was Hamilton, the musical. I had been to New York by myself and seen that. I had my team come down. We all saw it. I said, Lynn manuel himself had said openly, please, if you're an ed education young student, and all over the internet were all people doing imitations of Hamilton. I took it a step further. I thought, okay, I'm going to film it. I'm going to make a video to honor this great piece. It was fantastic. I did four videos. They were in costume. I got arrangements done. I worked with a hip hop artist. I, I, I went for broke on it so excited it was the it was the talk of toronto i was on talk shows it was this it was that and then all of a sudden lynn manuel's press office shut us down his lawyer shut us down with a cease and desist and i'm going but he told us to do this very thing so i contacted an entertainment lawyer being a fighter which i paid for out of my own pocket which was a thousand dollars i might add and he said he has no right because according to Canadian law, if you're doing it for no money and education purposes, you can post it. So we reposted it. Then they took us down again. And my lawyer said, they're wrong. You can fight it. I said, um, I, I, I was devastated. The work was brilliant. I was devastated. And I thought, one day I'll meet Lin-Manuel and I'll tell him what they did. It was so cruel. My kids were crushed. And that was a big blow, a huge blow. Yeah. And um, the the thing that's interesting as you get older, I do think you have to figure out what it is you do want to put energy into and what you want to fight. Yeah. And sometimes I had a cease and desist letter on a play I wrote from my <laughs> sister, my sister-in-law. And I, I was dev like, it, it turned out I could do the play, but I had to remove it. I didn't even have her in it, but she thought I did. I have never felt so guilty. I felt like I'd committed a crime and I'm like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what crime I've committed. So as we wrap up, I just want to ask, um, you know, looking back, like, and looking at your life, what do you think uh, you'd want to tell people is the most important thing about life and doing what you love? 
life is about the things that don't work out and what you pick yourself up and you keep moving forward. It's not what does, that's the easy part. It's, it's, it's made up of your stumbles and your fails and your whatever. And when you regroup and come through again, that's the magic. Mm. Well, thank you so much for coming today. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, after that interview, you can see why so many people call her Mama Anne. She feels like your mama, a good mama. So whether you're a comic like me or an astronaut like Chris Hatfield, we all need mentoring and encouragement and cheerleaders in our lives. If you feel like it, you can comment below and tell me who your cheerleaders have been. But before you go, follow, subscribe, like, you know, so people will know we're here. And if you want an extra laugh about my grandmothers and how they were my cheerleaders, there's a special edition of Downward Facing Broad called Queens in the Corners. You'll, you can check that out. Until next time, let's go out on a laugh. <laughs> it's okay. It's my own fault, really. I've been hanging out with people my own age. <laughs> People who say, you look fabulous, Deb, and I say, you look like you did in high school. That's if we went to Dried Apple Doll High. I'm lying to them, they're lying to me. And don't you love it when young people come up to you and go, oh, but you look great for your age. I know what you're thinking, shut up, you're a handsome woman. Seriously, what has happened? It's just like my body yawned and it never came back. There's a shelf right here. I can put coffee cup on it. I hang my earrings down. Sometimes I have to lift my breasts up to Swiffer under them. And it all got worse when I had my birthday. On my birthday, my aunt sent me a card and it said, now that you're 60, the weeks will fly by, but the days will drag. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> there wasn't even any cash there. Because apparently when you turn 60, not only is time flying by and dragging, you don't get any money. And my friends go, but 60 is the new 40. 60 is not the new 40. That's what causes motorcycle accidents for men. At 40, you can get pregnant. At 60, you look pregnant. At 40, you're still talking about your new food plan. At 60, we're like, eat it, don't eat it, shut the hell up about it. There is no new body coming in the mail. No. But at 40, you don't know that, right? You're still buying self-help books. But at 60, we're selling you the self-help books. Because we've already got our colors done, explored the power of now like there's no tomorrow. We've been disrupted and outsourced and thought outside the box and drank wine from the box. And we realize we have
have absolutely no more potential. Mm. And it's a relief. Forty's the new sixty. Imagine that. Imagine saying that to a cop if he pulled you over. Sorry, officer, but sixty's the new forty. Now she's a downward facing broad.